Shalom everyone, and welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. We have arrived at the Parsha Shmini. Shmini is the 26th Parsha in the Torah and the third Parsha of Vayikra. And as usual, we are looking at the first segment, the first Aliyah of the Parsha, and we want to see what we can glean out of the Parsha that touches our lives, that enlightens our week, our minds, our hearts. So um, our topic for today is the relationship between numbers and infinity. Every child has this experience as they first learn how to count. They count one number and another number, and very soon they realize the numbers go on without end. That the highest you go, the biggest number you can think of, there's always one number beyond it. So they never end. And then the concept of infinity, of something that's endless, enters their mind. And they know it can never be reached, and they know that no number, however big, will ever get there. And yet the concept of infinity is sort of somehow there. It's looming in some unreachable horizon. And although we can never reach it and we can never grasp it, we somehow intuitively have a notion within us that it, there is something like this, the concept of infinity. So there's something about the uh, the opening, as we'll see, of this parsha that touches upon this topic, the tension between the gradual process of counting and one number and another number, and the unreachable horizon of infinity that we want to get to, or that all the numbers aspire to. And as we'll see, this tension between the numbers and the and infinity, or the finite and the infinite, is also symbolic of a deeper tension, a deeper chasm, we can say, between between the scientific, the rational, what we can grasp and measure and understand and put into the molds of our of our rational thinking, and the unfathomable, the un the something that cannot be understood, that's beyond the rational, beyond the grasp of the human intellect. So the numbers versus infinity also symbolize, they stand for this deeper or wider sort of tension that is very uh, essential to human existence and to our very nature as beings who think and dream and aspire to something that's beyond nature, beyond what we can see and understand. So how does all of this have to do with the Parsha? So we'll start with the fact that the, this Parsha has several interesting connections to the topic of numbers. We're just starting with numbers. We're not going into infinity yet. Um, what are the connections? So the first connection is that this is the only Parsha out of the, all the 54 Parshas of the Torah that is named after a number. Shmini means eighth. The beginning of the parsha talks about the eighth day of the preparation for uh, setting up the tabernacle. So the name of the parsha is eighth, which means which comes from the number eight. So that's the first connection. Second connection is that this parsha is mentioned in the Gemara in connection to one of the names that were given to several of the sages, they were called Suflim. Suflim means either authors or counters. 
So they would write the Torah, but they would also count very carefully, very lovingly, all the letters of the Torah. They would count each and every letter, and they try to find the middle letter and the middle word and the middle verse within the Torah. So the middle letter is in this parsha. It's a vav of the word gachon, and the middle. There's not a middle word, but there there are two words that the middle of the Torah is just between them. It's also in our parsha. And as for the verse, there are two opinions given there as to what is the middle verse, because there are sev- there were there used to be several versions of the Torah. So the one opinion was that it was in the parsha previous to this parsha, and the second opinion was that it can be found in the next parsha, meaning that this parsha is sort of the mean, the uh, the average between the two opinions. So either way, uh, this parsha seems to be the middle parsha in terms of uh, words, letters, and verses. So it has to do with the counters. Another thing is that if you look at the word shmone in Hebrew, shmone for female or shmona for male, uh, it can be read as Shemone or Shemona. That is counting, or who is counting. So it the, the very number, it's just, just one number, is eight. But the specific number eight can be read as referring to the act of counting. Shemone, who is counting. Shemona, female, who is counting. So that's another another interesting connection. Yet another one is that Parashat Shmini is unique in being the only parasha that in several years, in, in not in Eretz Yisrael, but in other countries, in several years it can be read eight times. It, it, it happens when uh, it, it falls in a certain place around Pesach, and then you end up having reading it twice on Minchav Shabbat, twice on Mondays and Thursdays, another time the actual parsha, and there's even an eighth time uh, somewhere around there. And and the Rebbe used to say, but this is the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he used to say that Shmini Shemone Shmena. He says when, when Parshat Shmini is read Shmone Peamim eight times, the year, because we're in the beginning of Nisan now, Nisan is the first month, of the monthly, yearly calendar, of the, the calendar of when you start counting from the months. So he said it's going to be a fat, full year, Shmena. So that, that's, and there are actually even more connections. Another very important connection is, of course, that Parashat Shmini is always read either just before or just after Pesach, which means it's very closely uh, connected to the beginning of Sfirat Omer, the counting of the Omer, which is the most uh, the main mitzvah that involves counting, that we go into the process of counting in a very intense way, because of course, as we all know, we count the Omer 49 days each night. So there is this interesting connection between uh, Shmini and the counting of the Omer and the process of counting. But... Um, we can only understand this when we go deeper a little bit into the specific number 8 and also the specific number 50 because if we're adding the counting of the Omer into the pool and we have to think about these two numbers and as we can see there are actually two very interesting things or several very interesting things 
going on here in the relationship between these two numbers. So let's go in a little bit into what's, uh, what, what they mean. So the beginning of the parsha, as we said, it starts with the verse, On the eighth day, Moshe called upon Aharon and his sons and the elders of Israel. And really what's happening there is that this is the first day of the activity, Avodat HaMishkan, of the activity of the tabernacle, the service of the tabernacle. So the previous parasha Tzav ended with a description of the seven uh, Yemei HaMiluim. I don't remember the exact English term. It's the seven days in which Moses instructed Aaron and his sons as to how the service should be conducted. He did everything on his own, and it was a kind of dress rehearsal, a literal dress rehearsal, because he put on the, the actual garments of the Kohanim. So he instructed them as to how the the tabernacle is, uh, how the service is conducted, and then on the eighth day, which is really, it doesn't, the verse doesn't say, but the sages tell us it was the first day of Nisan, the day that the, the tabernacle was erected, and the first kolbanot of the Nesim, the chiefs of the of the tribes were were given, and it was also the day that that Aaron uh, started. Aaron and his sons started uh, performing their duties in the tabernacle. And then what happened was, so you have, you have seven days that were very you know regular and earthly. It was just Moshe teaching Aaron and his sons what to do, and then on the eighth day, it's actually happening, and 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 the, and actual sacrifices are first given, the first ever sacrifices within the context of the Jewish uh, service of the tabernacle, and then a miraculous event happens: fire descends from the heavens onto the altar, and engulfs and consumes the sacrifices. So you had seven days leading up to this. And then you had a special, unique, miraculous eighth day in which the fire descended and consumed the sacrifices. So that's a very interesting relationship or tension. And then something very similar is going on with the counting of the Omer. The counting of the Omer is going on for seven weeks. That's seven times seven. It's just like the seven days of preparation for the tabernacle, but it's seven times seven. So it's 49 days in which we count, we stand and we count, first day of the Omer, second day of the Omer, until we get to the 50th day. But the 50th day, we don't count. The Torah is ambiguous. First it tells us to count 50 days, then it tells us to count 49 days or 7 weeks. So what do we do? We count, we, we don't count the 50th day. We say, well, it must be uh, 50, not including fi- the, the actual 50th uh, number. And the deeper meaning, of course, is that the 50th day is the day of Shavuot itself, the, the, the festival of the giving of the Torah. So the 49 days are the 49 days leading from ex- the Exodus from Egypt onto receiving the Torah. And then on the 50th day, the heavens open, the Torah descends, just like the fire descended on the altar. And the eighth day of the tabernacle, which is actually happening later, on the 50th gate of the Exodus, the heavens opened, and God Himself descended upon the mountain, gave us the Torah. We heard His voice, and and when we reenact this, when we count the Omer, it's actually, so to speak, God is counting for us. He's the one doing the counting of the fiftieth day. We can only count 
to 49. That's as, as, as high as we can go, so to speak. And of course, he says these are all symbolic numbers, as we'll see in a minute. And then the 50th day is him counting, so to speak, for us. So there's, there appears to be this very deep connection between the seven days of preparation for the tabernacle and the 49 days of the counting, and also between the eighth miraculous day with the fire descending and the 50th, sorry, <laughs> and, and the 50th day in which um, uh, God himself descended upon the mountain. So the first numerical connection is, as we said, Eight and fifty are numbers that follow seven in different senses. It's seven in the case of eight, or seven squared in the case of fifty. What does this mean? Seven symbolizes <coughs> the cycles of nature. The world was created in seven days. Um, the eighth day was the first day of the second week, but that was another a new week, different from the first week. The first week is the foundation. It's like the the basic pattern of the cycles of nature. In Hebrew, the word Sheva is very, is cognate, it's very close to the word Teva. They rhyme, they end with the same two letters. So there's something about Sheva and Teva that are connected. Nature is all about the, the cycles of the week, and which symbolize all the cycles of the month and the year and the, the, the movement of the stars. It, it all, it's all folded or, or symbolized by the number seven. So, and it's also, seven is also called, in, in, in one of the sources, it's called Yemeha Heikef, the days of circum, circumnavigation or circum, uh, circumambulation, I don't know the word exactly. Um, it has to do with growing around with the circles, the cycles of nature. So therefore, there's something about eight and fifty, which symbolize what's beyond nature. So it's just a regular number. We can count to 8 and 50 and beyond 8 and beyond 50 is no problem, but 8 and 50 are symbolic numbers. And we can say, just like in mathematics, a, a positive integer, something that's a whole number and that's positive, not negative, these are called natural numbers. So we can say, sort of, you know, better metaphorically, that 8 and 50 are supernatural numbers, so to speak. They're natural numbers, but they're also, they stand for, they symbolize the infinite, really, they, they're symbols of infinity. We all know that the symbol for infinity, the main symbol used for infinity, is a sort of horizontal eight, an eight that's not erect, but it's, it's lying down. There's actually, it's not historically a variant of eight, because the, the numerals that we use uh, came from India via the, the Arab world. Whereas the symbol for infinity, the uh, horizontal eight, uh, existed in the West before the when the when the West was still using the Roman numerals before the, we got this, the, the the Indian numerals. So it's it, historically it's different symbols, but of course they ended up in the same place. They ended up being the same symbol, the eight that we that we're using, and the use, symbol for infinity. They sort of converge. We're going to talk in the end a little bit about convergent evolution. And there's also something, we can also talk about convergent cultural evolution, which is two different cultures arriving at the same symbol. So this is going to be very important for what we're going to talk about uh, a little bit later on.
So there's something about eight of fifty that symbolize really infinity. Um, another interesting connection is that both numbers refer to the Sefirah of Bina understanding. If you look at the tree of Sefirot, and if you go from the bottom up, you have the seven lower Sefirot, which correspond to the attributes of the heart, the emotional level. And then the eighth Sefirah, when you go from the bottom up, the eighth Sefirah is Bina understanding. It's the gateway to the hidden levels of the Sefirot. The lower seven Sefirot are called the revealed level. The upper three Sefirot are called the hidden level. Bina is the first of the upper three when you go from the bottom up. So as you get to Bina, it's like you're going into the hidden realms of, 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 the, of being. So that's the eighth sphere, but it's also very much connected to the number 50. So to begin with, if you take the lower seven sefirot and you inter-include them, that's seven times seven, just like in the counting of the Omer, then of course you have 49, uh, 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 you know, elements within those seven sefirot. And then as you go beyond it, Bina becomes the 50th element. And Another thing is that Bina, the, the word Bina, the concept, the attribute of Bina, has to do with a very deep concept that appears in the Talmud, which is the 50 gates of understanding. It says that the world was created with 50 gates of understanding, and Moses himself was only given, he, he, was, he, only, he was only able to open or to go through 49 of those gates, and the 50th gate eluded him, even Moses. But then in Kabbalah it says that it, he did enter the 50th gate upon his death, because he died in a place called Nevo. Nevo, you can break down the word into Nun Bo. Nun is 50. The 50th gate is called Sha'ar Hanun, the gate of Nun or the gate of 50. So, again, it's 50 gates of understanding, Chamishim Sha'arei Bina, and all of them have to do with Bina, but especially the 50th gate. <coughs> now, we said that the similarity between what happened in those days is very clear, it's very evident that there was the fire coming down and, the, and God's presence coming down onto the mountain. So we can say that really what's happening here is that we're talking about a, a gradual bottom-up process of us sort of climbing this metaphorical ladder that either has seven rungs or 49 rungs, and we go up that ladder and then something when we get to the top, something happens, and maybe it was already happening as we were getting closer. Something descends upon us, a, a top-down process. We have the fire coming down, we have God's presence coming down, and it's kind of coming to meet us. We're climbing towards it, and it's coming down to meet us. This is the image, the main image that we need to, to have in our heads now, because this is what we want to think deeply about. it. As we're going upwards, there is something that it doesn't just become closer because we're advancing towards, because infinity is something you never really get close to, but it's actually coming towards us. We can sort of think of a, about infinity or an infinite light that is sort of descending or flowing down into the world. We need to also come towards it in order for us, for it to come, you know, it says in the, in the Gemara, it says that as you grow distant from God, the, the distance is really doubling each day. So when you, let, you, let's say you leave God for a day, you create a two-day distance between you. Why is that? It says because 
It's like when you leave a carriage. The carriage is moving in one direction. You move in another direction. So when you go a day, that carriage also proceeded in the opposite direction for a day. So now you have a two-day distance. If you leave God for a week, you have a two-week distance to cover. Of course, this can be shortened. But the, an interesting idea that we have here is that as we're going closer, then the other party sort of feels that we're going closer, and they become sort of telepathically. It doesn't take time. And then and then it starts moving towards us. So then we can reshorten the distance between us. So this is the idea here. It's, it's as we're going up the ladder of 7 or 49, the 8 and the 50, the infinite light, the sublime light that's beyond reach, is actually descending towards us. And we can see this just amazingly beautifully in the Hebrew words for 8 and 50. So 8 is Shmini. The root for Shmini is Shemin. Shemin means oil. Oil is, of course, a very precious, deep, and, and, and symbolic substance in the Torah. Shemin is uh, symbolic of the innermost secrets of the Torah. It says that wine is symbolic of the basic secrets of the Torah. <clears throat> in Hebrew, yain has the same numerical value as sod, secret. And then oil is symbolic of razin de razin, the secrets of secrets, the innermost secrets. And oil is something that seeps down gradually. And of course, we know that kings and priests were all anointed with oil. So the, the oil would be poured down on their heads. And this is symbolic of just what we just said. The secrets of the Torah sort of descending or flowing down upon our heads and sort of filtering, seeping into our consciousness. And and then, so this is Shmini, Shemin, oil. Fifty, or five, is the root Chamesh. Chamesh is, every root has several combinations. So if one of the combinations of Chamesh is Mashach, Mashach, unbelievably, is to anoint. So, 50 and 5 have to do with anointing. So, if there's actually the, the oil, the main oil that was used, Shemen HaMishcha, that was used in the desert to anoint the, the instruments and vessels of the tabernacle, and of course the priests themselves, uh, actually involves these two roots. Shemen is the root of Shmini, and Mishcha is, is this is the oil of anointing, Mishcha, alludes to Chamesh and Chamishim. So, this is something just beautiful. So, we have these two numbers. They appear to be regular numbers, but they're really not. They're symbolic. We call them uh, supernatural numbers. And they stand for, they symbolize what is supernatural, what is beyond the world, beyond the realms of understanding. It's the 50th gate of understanding, which is really something that's beyond regular understanding. And it's the eighth miraculous day that has to do with bonding with something that's beyond nature. Of course, the, this number also appears in the context of circumcision. We circumcise uh, the, the, the sun, the sons, uh, on the eighth day has to do with creating a covenant, a connection between them and what's beyond reality. And Hanukkah has to do with oil and eight and so on. Hanukkah is really founded on this parsha, on the fact that the tabernacle was... Um, uh, initiated uh, on the eighth day, so when the when the 
um, temple was recovered from the Greeks and was again, the, the, the service began, it also involved the, a miracle of eight days. Okay, um, so going on. We want to now go into the deeper meaning of, as we said, this tension or this jump between uh, the regular uh, concession, concession? I'm not sure that's the word. Uh, the regular order or the regular uh, series of, of numbers, and then this sort of impossible jump to, to infinity, to what's beyond these numbers. And, and as I said in the beginning, we can really think about this as standing for something far wider, and it really touches our world today in many, many ways. Numbers have to do with putting things into boundaries and borders and, and molds of understanding. When we count something, we measure it, we encompass it, we sort of, we feel that we understand it. Science is very much numerical. Modern science is very much numerical. Modern science was born out of the marriage, we can say, of physics and mathematics. Before that, there was a lot of mathematics, beautiful, amazing mathematical um, achievements throughout the Middle Ages, uh, but they had no bearing on the physical world. The physical uh, understanding of the world was stagnating, and there was nothing really new going on for many, many years. But mathematics was blooming. Uh, why? Because physics and mathematics were not, they didn't go hand in hand yet. And the scientific revolution, in many ways, is about the marriage of mathematics and, and physics. And then what you had was sort of, let's say, Galileo, looking at the world and measuring the weight of things, the velocity of things, the speed of things, and, and then arriving at equations that really formulate the laws of nature. And this turned out to be unbelievably fruitful. And the, the entire scientific revolution, in many ways, was born out of this. Suddenly, you were able to sort of count the world. You were able to count and measure and see the relationships between different numbers. And then physics, modern physics, was born. And now you have uh, equations and formulations that, that make the world fathomable. And, and of course, this has been unbelievably successful, and all of modern in industry and technology and medicine was born out of the scientific revolution. So what we have is an uh, unbelievable new knowledge, massive amounts of, of bits of knowledge, of understanding about the world, but we also have a sort of a paradigm or a, a worldview, a world picture, a certain structure through which, or a certain lens through which we're looking at the world. And, and what happened is, is that because science was so successful in giving material, mechanistic, and reductionist explanations for a, a massive amount of phenomena, uh, the notion arose that this uh, sort of paradigm, this form of explanation, this mode of explanation, is the only explanation that is legitimate, that is worthwhile, that actually means anything. This is called the positivist view. The positivist uh, view means that anything that is 
uh, only things that can be demonstrated empirically or scientifically, according to the scientific method, uh, actually make sense. And if you talk about something that's not empirical, that's subjective, that's inner, that's uh, overly hypothetical, it, it can't be, uh, you know, experimented or measured, it's nonsensical. That's the notion. And this is something, you know, we shouldn't, and we, there's no need to argue or, 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 or think negatively about science because it has been so immensely fruitful and, 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 and beneficent. But we do need to argue and to counter the notion that scientific explanations are the only mode of legitimate uh, explanations. And what happened is, is that the, the scientific worldview is looking at the world in the following way. It sees the world as made up only of matter, so it's materialistic. It says only matter exists. So the world is the sum of physical uh, uh, particles that exist in the world. And these particles are governed by indifferent Law, by the indifferent laws of physics. And then, from then on, everything just happens on its own. And this universe, these particles accumulated into stars and planets, and the various chemical um, elements were formed, and then on those planets, gradually, life began. It's first, very simply, some self-replicating uh, proto-cell, and then it became more sophisticated using the combined um, uh, forces of um, mutation and natural selection. And then all the various species of all the flora and fauna of the world and maybe other worlds evolved and, and leading up to the most sophisticated thing in the universe, which is the human brain. And, but it all happened on its own without any intent or purpose or will, or design. So the, the picture you have here is like that the entire cultural, psychological, spiritual universe of, of humankind, our thoughts and our dreams and our hopes and our ideas and all of literature and all of religion, all of this is like some, 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 some kind of sandcastle that wasn't built by any designer, it was fashioned by, by random winds that sort of gradually carved, you know, like you have interesting rock formations. It, we were a rock formation. And we were formed by sand, by, by sort of the winds of nature on some beach. But eventually a big wave of entropy is going to wash over us and, and dissolve this, this rock formation or this sandcastle. And of course, many people are, are very uncomfortable with this, but it also seems to fly in the face to contradict many, many elements of the universe that don't go along with this. You have the universe being fine-tuned to create life. The laws of physics themselves are fine-tuned. If they could only be a little bit different, life wouldn't be possible. You have jumps in the evolutionary scale, like the famous Cambrian explosion, it's called, when you have a a plethora of new species arriving almost instantaneously, which is, cannot be explained by the gradual Darwinian uh, uh, evolution as is as, as, um, uh, formally understood now. 
And, of course, the very appearance of consciousness within the physical brain is also something that is deeply, deeply problematic. And many philosophers and scientists have and are pointing out to this. Now, we can say that because science is, again, very successful and beneficial and is giving unbelievable, wonderful explanations for a huge amount of, of phenomena, that we don't want to toss it away, God forbid. What we want is to simply understand that science is sort of looking at things from the bottom up. It's sort of counting from 1 to 7 or 1 to 49. It's looking at the world as... It's only looking at at really bottom-up processes. There are many top-down processes within nature, but they are really part of a broader narrative which is solely bottom-up, which is the, the matter of the universe driven by the laws of nature that is gradually creating uh, more sophisticated things. So we said we said it's materialistic, there's only matter. We said that it's mechanistic, it's only the laws of nature which cause mechanistic, gradual processes without any intervention of something supernatural. This is mechanistic or naturalistic. It's also reductionist, meaning that anything that's high or, sp or what we would call spiritual or conscious needs to be explained in terms of simpler physical entities. So this is called reductionism. You reduce something high to something that's below it. So science is giving us a, a beautiful picture, but it's only materialistic and mechanistic and reductionistic, and it explains the world as it sort of grows and develops from the bottom up. But we need to add a complementary picture, a complementary dimension or image. It's like it's like this worldview is just the it's like just imagine a picture, a picture of a landscape. And you have in a regular landscape you would have the the, the earth, the ground, and the horizon, and then you would have the skies. But the worldview that science has provided us with, it's just like a picture, it's a landscape with only the earth, and then the rest is void. There's no heavens. So we need to paint in the skies. That's how we should think about it. Science has given us an amazing uh, uh, picture, portrait, or a, a landscape picture of the world, and, and, and also a portrait of man as, as driven by the laws of physics, the laws of biology, the laws of psychology, the laws of genetics. So this picture, both both landscape and portrait of the world and of man, it's just the, the, the lower half of it. And we need to paint in the skies, and we need to paint in the soul. And this is painted, or this is, we should think about this, as going from the top down. So let's give us a simple example. A simple example would be that if we're thinking about a, a, a seed growing into a tree, so we know that the seed goes into the ground, we know that it decays, and we know that it starts giving, putting off roots, and, and then it sprouts, and, and we know about the genes and about the process of how genes create proteins and how everything grows into a tree. But there's another way to think about this, which is, again, it's complementary. And this is to think about the idea, the image, the form of the tree that is of the future tree, the tree that the seed potentially is or is destined to be or may be if the, the right 
uh, criteria are met and the right um, environment is everything is there. So we can imagine that below the seed there is this ghost future tree, the the ghost of trees future, and it's up there, and it's sort of calling the seed. It's sort of pulling. We can we can think about the seed as driven, pushed by the laws of nature. We can also think of it as pulled towards a concept, an idea, a, a spirit, which is the, again, the, the words sound new agey and they don't sound scientific. They're not scientific, but they're not necessarily something, you know, silly or new agey. It, it, it was actually something that, uh, for most of the history of philosophy, was very clear, we need to have this. So Plato was talking about the world of ideas or the world of forms. Platonic ideas or forms are the spiritual essences of everything in the world. And and everything is created through a, com a combination or a, a mixing together of, of, of matter and form. Form isn't matter. It's not material. It can never be reduced to the material world. The material world is just what it is. But even the fact that you have something called the laws of nature, that's not something material. That's something, that's a, that's a form. That's something spiritual. It's something that you can't, you can't observe. You don't observe a law of physics. You observe the repetition of phenomena. But what's the underlying law is information. It's form. It's a concept. It's an equation. And we can expand this to include all of really the meaning of the world. Because as we said, the, the reductionist materialistic picture of the world is ultimately meaningless. There's no inherent meaning. But if you do think about a realm of something like platonic ideas, or essences, or meanings, or forms, you can think about the world as being pulled towards or driven towards this level. So Plato was talking about the world of ideas, Aristotle, his student, who was less idealistic in that sense, he was also talking about there being four causes for everything in the world. Two of them are still held on to by modern science, but the other two were neglected, but they need to be redeemed. So the two causes that, uh, that have been preserved are the material cause, what is the thing made of, and the... Um, I think it's called the active cause, which is like the mechanistic process or the whatever it is, what ev the event that caused the thing that we're explaining. But Aristotle was also speaking about two more causes. We 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 wouldn't really call them causes today, but two more things that uh, influence everything in the world, which is the formal cause and the teleological cause. The formal cause, it's just like the platonic idea, is the form, the essence of what it is. And the uh, teleological, the telos, the telos is the goal, the ultimate goal. We still use this the word cause in this context when people are, let's say, fighting for a certain cause. So if you're fighting for a certain cause, um, you're, uh, it's not, you're not, it doesn't cause you in the sense that it pushes you, it's the, you have this ideal or this goal, and you strive towards it. So in that case, you're fighting for a, a cause, but the cause is in, in your future. It's in an ideal realm of meanings. So this is something we we really, it's one of the, let's say, the main 
endeavors of anyone in the world who wishes to integrate science and what you, what is used to be called mysticism it's not really so mystical it has to do with paying due respect to our spiritual even and intellectual intuitions that meaning exists and that consciousness is real it's very empirical in many ways it's more empirical than the, than the material world because we experienced we experience it firsthand that free will is real it's an actual real phenomenon and then we can complement paint in the skies and complement the scientific worldview we complement materialism with spirituality we complement uh, mechanism mechanistic explanations with uh, what we called the uh, the form or we can also talk about uh, holistic thinking system thinking thinking about um, things as a whole and we complement the the um, uh, so th this 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 complements the the reductionism. Reductionism is complemented by holism, and mechanism is complemented by teleology. The idea that there is a telos, a a goal, a purpose. That's the word, a purpose for things, not just a cause. Chazal, the sages, described this very beautifully. We talked about the tree before. They said that there is that every leaf in the world. It's mind-boggling to think about. Every leaf in the world, every leaf of a tree, every leaf of grass, has a small angel above it that is calling it to grow and is summoning it to grow. And this is its future essence. So we can think about this amazing plethora of angels, which is really something like the world of ideas of Plato. And, and they're whispering towards nature. And each one has this it's called a mazal. Mazal is a this angel. It's one of the names for for these spiritual entities that sort of stand above each leaf and, of course, every tree and every human being and every animal. And mazal comes from the word nozel. It's something that drips, that seeps down. It's seeping down like the oil that is anointed onto our heads. This realm of meanings, of ideas, of concepts, is sort of seeping down, entering our heads. So um, this is something beautiful to, to ponder, to think about. It's very elevating. When you break free from this concept that the world is just a, a, a bundle of atoms, uh, you know, hurtling through space ra randomly, or not randomly, but blindly, uh, um, motivated by, by blind laws of physics, and then, and then blindly creating all the beauty and meaning and depthness of, of, of a spiritual experience. It's much more beautiful and true and whole and really takes into account uh, the full nature of the world when we ascribe actual meaning to things, not just having a sense of meaning. It's actually believing that meaning uh, ontologically exists. And there's a spiritual, the, the skies that we paint in are really there. We just need to paint them into our picture. So this is really the deeper meaning of the uh, seven or 49 rungs of the ladder that, that, that science is, uh, has painted and described and elaborated upon very beautifully. 
And then the 50th gate of understanding, or the 8th gate of, of the 8th day, is, is this entire realm of consciousness and meaning and spirituality and connection to God, which is, uh, as we said, sort of seeping down or merging, coming to, uh, to combine with, with the scientific picture into a fuller, uh, wholer, a more holistic picture of the world. We're going to end with a kind of epilogue. Um, which deals with an element in the parasha. It's not in the beginning of the parasha, but it's there. Uh, the parasha later on describes uh, the impure, foul birds uh, that we mustn't eat. And there's a list of birds. And then one of them stands out. If you know a little bit about zoology and taxonomy, uh, this is very jarring. You see that the bat, atelif, is counted among the different impure birds. Now, why is this odd? And the reason is that uh, a bat is not a bird. A bat is a mammal. It's not a bird in any way. It doesn't have feathers. It doesn't have a beak. It doesn't lay eggs. It is a mammal. And, and how come it has wings? So this is where it gets interesting. There's a concept in science called convergent evolution. The concept of convergent evolution is that sometimes in nature, you have different species, totally different, and in different places and in different, different histories, that evolve or develop similar analogous features because they're dealing with similar problems. And there are many examples for this, but the, a, a, a prime example, a beautiful example, would be wings. Wings have developed, according to evolution, have developed in nature at least uh, three or four separate times. They exist in many, many, many insects. All, fl all flying insects have wings, like beetles and butterflies and flies. And that's one thing. That's the, the earliest one. And then you have, uh, it, we only have fossils of this, but we have the whole family of pterodactyls, which are were the famous flying dinosaurs. We have fossils of them, they had wings, and they're lizards, they're not insects. And then you have birds. Birds are lizards, they're fowl, they're, they're birds. All of birds have wings, different wings. And then the final and fourth example is a, a very small amount of flying mammals, the, the, the primary one being the bat. So, convergent evolution is very interesting. From the convergent evolution is, again, when you describe this from the bottom up, then you have independent processes that have nothing to do with one another, but they ended up creating something very, very similar, which is the wing. The wing is this aerodynamic solution to lifting and to flying and to uh, um, hovering. Um, and, and so... Let's say mechanically, uh, and in terms of engineering, it's the same solution, but it was developed completely independently in different er eras and areas of the world. Um, but when you think about uh, the world of ideas, of platonic ideas as real, then you have a different image. You have an image that the idea of the wing, the concept of the wing, the algorithm the 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 formula of what the wing is is has its own independent existence 
it's sort of the wings themselves, or the essence of the wing, they fly up there in the heavens, the idea of the wing, the platonic realm of ideas. And then you have different species that arrive at this common uh, uh, purpose. It's not the common ground, it's not the common origin. They don't have the same origin, it's different origins. But they well, they do have this one origin according to evolution, which is all life. But but they, as species, they, they have different origins. And then they arrive at this uh, the same, uh, the same concept, the same idea, the same uh, uh, um, platonic form. So then, when you think about this, the Torah isn't talking about birds in the modern taxonomic sense of the words. It's talking about flying animals, animals that partake in the spiritual essence of the wing. And so a bat is not a bird, but a bat is a flying being. And in fact, the Hebrew word is of, and of comes from the word le'ofif, to fly. So we're not talking about birds. If we're talking about birds, then the Torah is making a mistake. The bat is not a bird. But if the, if the Torah is speaking about flying animals, then a bat does become a, does be, is included in this category. So really, it's really beautiful in a way that we have this exception to the rule, that we have this unique animal, which is the bat, sort of placed in there in that same list, because it, it, it provokes us to think about this idea that when you have convergent evolution, then the taxonomist would say, oh, it's totally different species. But anyone who's looking at the form, at the shape, at the, at the concept would say, yes, but it's, it's the, these different uh, lineages have arrived at the same platonic spiritual concept. So we can say that the essence of the wing, the idea of the wing, has descended down and, and has, been, has revealed itself in different species. This is just like the light of the eighth day, of the fiftieth day, descending down upon the world, coming in, seeping into the world. It's like the, the, in, the, the light of infinity, the endless, infinite light of God dripping down, trickling down into the world, like those angels above all those leaves, and whispering us, telling us to grow, meet us. Let's meet, let's all meet at the heavens. So we have to paint in the heavens, and then we have to climb towards the heavens, and then this beautiful union of of the natural and the supernatural, of of the finite and the infinite, can occur. So this beautiful images. Are, are given us by this week's parsha, and this is our class for this week. Shabbat shalom.